add my welcome and greetings to all of you this morning. <clears throat> and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to Psalm 115, the 115th Psalm. And while you're doing that, I just want to just take a moment and uh, say thank you. Um, those of you that receive the Realm communications that go out to um, those of you that are on Realm, which is uh, most of our church, uh, you know that in this last month, uh, there were a couple of Sundays I was visiting other churches in our region, and um, in my role as regional leader, uh, I'm called to provide essentially care and uh, oversight and support to local elderships in those churches, and I uh, was able to connect with um, three different elderships over the course of the month of August, and um, your prayer is very, very meaningful. There are seven churches in the Midwest, Northwest region of Sovereign Grace churches, and um, five of them have less than a full complement of, of what we refer to as a plurality of elders. Um, and three of those churches only have one ordained elder, which makes them very vulnerable and um, easy for those pastors to become discouraged. And, and so to come alongside them and support them, and especially there's a couple of churches where there have been particularly great challenges um, it's, it's been really significant to come alongside them, visit them face-to-face, -face, which I've been doing. And um, your prayers for me are exceedingly meaningful. It, it's, it's one thing to have your heart around a local church, and uh, it's, it's another thing to have the heart space to surround seven churches. And, uh, and so um, our partnership with the rest of the churches in our region, when you're praying for, for me and and uh, sometimes my wife, as she travels with me, um, it is exceedingly sustaining. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a significant thing to know that we're cared for by you. And you share in that partnership. So thank you for doing that. Since we plan, God willing, to return to the book of Exodus next Sunday, it seemed good to me to draw our attention this morning to a psalm that many Old Testament scholars consider to be set in the context of Israel's post-Exodus wilderness wandering. In other words, Psalm 115, actually Psalm 114 and 115 are believed to be composed for and addressed to the people whom God had delivered from their helpless enslavement to Pharaoh and brought out of the land of Egypt. But they're not yet situated in the promised land. Rather, they are wandering in the wilderness without, a, without any clear timetable and without meaningful structure for productivity. I mean, I just try to imagine wandering around for 40 years wondering what to do next. <laughs> it would be greatly challenging. Life for them seems to be on hold they're apparently stuck in between what once was and what is yet to be. Experts in the field of transition emotions call this the neutral zone. 
And it is, it's actually a remarkably common experience. Some change takes place, and with that change, something that once was is no more. Something has come to an end. And with the ending, there's loss. And that loss, quite naturally, engenders at least some degree of the feeling of grief. And then there's this in-between time when the new normal is not yet. And, and it can be an uncomfortable experience. Depending on the degree of change, it can be a disorienting experience. Depending on how long one is in that in-between space, it can be an exceedingly disorienting, disequilibrating experience. And it is especially disorienting and disequilibrating, it seems, for God-fearing people. And that's because it feels like God is far off. He seems absent. And it's perplexing because God's apparent aloofness is, is so inconsistent with what one has experienced of him prior to that. Situations like this can have then an eroding effect on one's assurance that God is good. Seasons of transition can tempt us to doubt that we remain the object of God's favor. The wilderness-like land in between has a way of provoking guilt and shame and all manner of unsettling emotions. At any given time, there are many among us who find ourselves in the place or time or season in between. Perhaps a chapter of your life has come to an end. It might be the end of a relationship. Maybe you experienced the death of a loved one or a divorce or a breakup. It might be the end of a job. You've experienced the termination of meaningful employment. It might be the end of a place. You've relocated from another city or part of the country and it's taking time to resettle and get resituated. Perhaps you are in between churches. Familiar relationships have changed. The identity that came with serving in certain capacities has ended. Or maybe you are a new parent, a parent for the very first time and you are experiencing a very real ending to certain freedoms and discretion and margin of energy. Perhaps you are empty nesters and that son or daughter are no longer intersecting your daily life. Or maybe you're a recent college graduate but have yet to find your particular place of deployment. Transition emotions can happen for children as well. There, there, there are little ones who are going to school for the very first time. And your day is no longer mainly about 
free time and play. Your day is now mainly about order and structure and discipline. Listen, the purpose of Psalm 115 is to anchor God's people, to stabilize, to orient God's people for as long as they remain in the land in between. So I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 115. And, and please, if you're able, please stand with me and follow along as I read God's Word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where's their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. And may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Faith comes from hearing. Trust is birthed and strengthened and nourished through hearing. Not just any hearing, but hearing particularly the Word, the Word of Christ, the Word of a great Savior, the news 
of a redeemer, the news of one who has set us free from enslavement to sin. News, truth of a great savior who has brought his people to himself. Oh Lord, we pray that our faith might be strengthened in this time together. That you would magnify the power of your, your, your written word, your living word, by building trust among your people today so that in believing, in relying, in trusting, in depending on you, you get all the glory. You get all the glory, O oh Lord. We pray this for your sake, the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Well, change is a daily experience, right? Therefore, the, the complex emotions that accompany change are a daily experience as well. And therefore, since sincere, sincere religious cliches are just not enough to sustain us. We need something deeper. We need something stronger to anchor us. We need God in his active and dynamic presence. If we end up factoring God out of the equation and rest merely on tips, we strip ourselves bare before the blast of life's unceasing waves of change. But if we factor God in as our hope and as our help and as our shield, we can endure anything. And the deepest and strongest anchor point in all that God has revealed himself to be is his sovereignty. Summarized in one brief but very poignant verse, Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I'd like you to say that with me. Can we do that? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Again, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. One more time, Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And that means that everything God takes pleasure in doing, he does. And he cannot be hindered from doing. Or to say it another way, all that God does, he takes pleasure in. And he, ca he cannot be kept back from doing what he delights most in doing. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. This is, this is really the definition of who God is. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my pleasure. You see, God's sovereignty is what makes God 
God. God's sovereignty is what sets him apart from everyone else. Now, the, the outline of my sermon just has three main headings. Here they are. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is an obvious doctrine. Second, God's sovereignty is a resisted doctrine. And thirdly, God's sovereignty is a functional doctrine. It's obvious, it's resisted, but it gets things done. <laughs> it gets things done. And in the context of Psalm 115, it gets things done for God's people, particularly those who find themselves in the in-between. So let's start with how God's sovereignty is, is such an obvious doctrine. The, the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is obvious even if you are minimally aware of its basis in Scripture. God's sovereignty, most simply stated, means that He's in control. He's in control of everything. Everything goes exactly as He intends it to go. Psalm 100 and verse 15, verse 3 again. Let's say it. <laughs> Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He's in the heavens. It doesn't mean that He's far off. It means that He's over everything. God's sovereignty is His glorious throne from which He governs all things in un frustrated supremacy. And I say unfrustrated because he does whatever he pleases. That's not like us, right? We, we, we are almost, well, maybe just speaking for myself, I'm oftentimes frustrated. And my frustration comes is because I can't do all that I please. And because God can and does everything that he pleases, he's never frustrated. <laughs> So just pause and, and, and think for a second. How many things have impacted the formation of your life over which you have exercised no, no real determination, no ultimate desire over which you exerted no discernible control? So I did not plan to be born. I did not plan to be born in 1955. <laughs> I know that's shocking. Uh, I, I did not plan to be born in a Minneapolis hospital to a rural couple from the small town of Long Prairie, Minnesota. I did not plan to be the special child born to a woman who had lost her two previous children to death during childbirth. I did not pl plan my, my physical strat, uh, stature. I would have planned that differently. Uh, I did not plan my personal talents or strengths or aptitudes or temperament. I did not plan for the spiritual awakening that took place in my heart and soul during my junior year in high school. I did not plan for a chronic knee condition that would end my, my famous athletic dreams 
while at the very same time opening a door to short-term, a short-term mission experience where I would be captured by the exhilaration of gospel ministry. I did not plan to meet and fall in love with a young woman born and raised on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I did not plan fathering three sons. I could go on <laughs> and on and on and on. It is a humbling and obvious thing to acknowledge that virtually none of the most shaping influences in my life were a result of me doing what I pleased. There is simply no way I could have ever anticipated all the necessary and interwoven events and locations and people and relationships and conversations and transitions and problems and turning points going on in my world, much less the larger world, that all had to come together for the reality of my life to be what it is today. When you just stop, just stop and think... Of all the things that had to come together for any one piece of your story to unfold the way it did, doesn't it just make your brain go, you know, it melts? Now, of course, there are those who would chalk that up as mere fate and deny the notion that someone is in charge of all that. But the Bible says that someone is in charge of that. And that someone is not us. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, In your book, that is God's book, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Days, that is. And Ephesians 2.10 says, We're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so the longer we live and the more honest we are, the more we realize we couldn't have made that up. God did. God is in control. And for many, that's obvious. But the sovereignty of God is also a resisted doctrine. Since God's sovereignty means that He is in control of everything, that He is over everything, that he is uncontested in everything, unfrustrated by anything. The sovereignty of God is not only an obvious doctrine, it is also a, a hard doctrine. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7 says, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In Lamentations chapter 3 verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? It may be obvious there's, there's a lot of things in life over which we don't exert much, if anything, in the way of control, but, but you don't have to push the doctrine of God's sovereignty very far and you will feel it pushing back. Hard. Control is not something any of us by nature are comfortable giving up. Paul Tripp writes, one of the most dangerous delusions for each of us is the delusion of our own sovereignty. And one of our most dangerous idols is the idol of control. So whenever we find ourselves seemingly stuck in this land in between, frustration emerges. It emerges from our recognition that life, life has not worked out as we had hoped and planned. And when the unhoped for and the unplanned for happens, and we just get even a little taste of the bitterness of the loss, we are tempted knee-jerk to anger. <laughs> and in our disappointment, we are tempted to some measure of depression. And in those times when God seems far off, when God seems absent, when God seems unconcerned or inattentive, we are especially vulnerable to turning and entrusting ourselves to idols, and in particular, the idol of control. Loved ones, is it not obvious that we are all, by nature, passionately and unwaveringly devoted to our own personal autonomy and lordship? Here's an example. Now, this is just, it's taken strictly from the realms of the theoretical now. So, you happen to be running late, real late. And so, you're in a hurry. And it, it just happens to be the morning after someone in your household chose to get on this let's get tidy binge and puts your car keys where you cannot find them. And it also happens to be the morning after someone assumed, well, I could, I could just fill up the gas tank tomorrow. Strictly theoretical. Also happens to be the morning of all mornings, that one morning in months, that there is an accident and traffic is in gridlock. Now, the sovereignty of God is, it's in that moment, <laughs> it's a resisted doctrine. <laughs> oh, but it goes so far beyond the trivial. It gets much harder. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The Lord kills 
and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Isn't that the reason that the 65-year-old who loses all of his retirement in one devastating economic downturn or the wife whose husband abandons her for another woman or the parents whose kindergartner was randomly shot and killed by a mental patient who missed his meds might understandably express their heart wrenching resentment and God's in control of that the sovereignty of God is an obvious doctrine but it's also to some degree more or less a resisted doctrine but for those who love God and are called according to his purpose God's sovereignty is also perhaps most profoundly a, a functional doctrine it it serves us it it works for us it helps us it comforts us it encourages us it sustains us it it produces in us peace and hope at all times but in particular in the in-between according to Psalm 115, it is intended to just drench us, drench us with profound assurance and enduring joy. Five times the psalmist uses the word bless, a, bless, a, a word that we also understand is, is uh, translated happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the, those who mourn. Happy are those who are meek. It's beginning in verse 12, it says, the Lord, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. And then verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. That word blessed is also understood to be a family term. We know that. It, it's about relational attachment. It's about emotional connections within a family, within a household. And it is in the, the in-between times and places where the promise of God's blessing and keeping and joyful connecting functions most profoundly. So, so how, do, how does that work? How, how does God's sovereignty get that done? 
How does the doctrine of God's sovereignty produce security and joy in the hearts and souls of the people of God? And I, I believe that most fundamentally it, it gets this work done because it is ultimately rooted and grounded in God's purpose and, and person. It's who He is. It may seem and sound counterintuitive, but at those times when God seems so strangely passive, our strongest assurance is that God's commitment to our well-being is not ultimately based on us and our value, but on Him and His value. Look at verse 1 again. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where's their God? Let's say it together. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. That's right. What is it that moves the heart of God to act? To act for the good of His people. The people whom He has saved and has redeemed. Is God moved ultimately by our upright character and our worthy accomplishments? Is God moved to help us and shield us for the sake of how, how deserving we are? The psalmist answers, not us. <laughs> it's, not, it's not about us. God's blessing on us is not motivated by anything about us. Rather, God is driven to act for our good on the basis of His sovereign, unthwartable, unhindered, unfrustrated commitment to upholding His reputation. Loved ones, our peace and joy in the land in between, it, it's, it's not grounded on anything so flimsy and fragile and sandy as us. It is rooted and grounded in the soil of God's passion and unfrustrated pleasure to be known and praised in all the earth for His steadfast love and faithfulness. This, this was and is the whole point of the Exodus, which we're coming back to next week. Why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? Why did He deliver them from Pharaoh's house of slavery? Exodus 9.16, it's for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, here it is, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And that's what God does throughout all history. He does everything He does so that the greatness of His infinite perfections, and in particular His steadfast love and faithfulness, are put on display in such a way and to such a degree that His people find joy in Him that spills over in praise to Him. 
How can we be sure? How can we be so sure God's purpose to reveal his steadfast love and faithfulness will not be frustrated? And what if I'm stuck where I'm stuck in the whatever between? What if it's because of my sin? What if I got myself in this jam? Psalm 115, verse 3. We say it together. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Loved ones, if the basis of our assurance that God will act for our good is, is because it's what we deserve, we would be on shaky ground. No, our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. And what pleases Him most is the glory of His own steadfast love and His own unwavering faithfulness. That is a sure foundation for our faith. Loved ones, Psalm 115 is for people who find themselves in the land in between. But Psalm 115 is for people who are asking themselves and God, like, where am I? Is, is this it? Is this as good as it gets? Am I done? It's for people who are saying, is this my fault? Psalm 115 is for people who are afraid that their lives are fast becoming a lost opportunity. Psalm 115 is for people who have discovered, they've discovered this unsettling reality that their own limitations and insufficiency to control anything. <laughs> Psalm 115 is for people who wonder if they will ever enjoy the sweetness of God's presence again. But most of all, Psalm 115 is an invitation. It's an invitation for all of us, to you and to me, to trust God more deeply than we ever have before. Look at the repeated welcome in verses 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. How can we know? How can we know that the Lord will help us and protect us and provide for us and do good to us and bless us? He's the only one. He's the only one who does all that he pleases. And it pleases him to speak to us these words of invitation, these words of life. He alone has the eyes to see the far and the wide of every trajectory that we can't see. He oversees the fulfillment of every detail for our good. He alone has active and listening ears that hear our prayers and the cries of our hearts. He has a nose that smells the sweet aroma of the atoning sacrifice purchased, paid for, in full by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Christ, he stretches out his hands to serve and to bless and to heal and sustain. In Christ, he humbled himself and lived the perfect life, a perfect life among us. And in Christ, it pleased him. It pleased him 
to bear our griefs and to be crushed for our guilt. It's by His wounds that we're healed. And in Christ alone, we have one who daily presents and pleads His righteousness on our behalf. It's in Christ the Lord that we are remembered. Christ is our help. Christ is our shield. Loved ones, everything that God takes pleasure in doing, He does and cannot be hindered or frustrated from doing. And this is the ground of all of our joy at all times, in all seasons, no matter where we are. Let's pray together. So, Lord, we once again consider that you are God and that there is no other. That you are God and there's none like you declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my pleasure. We ask, O Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would cause this to be a firm, unshakable place for us to stand today. For the sake of your steadfast love, for the sake of the praise of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.